This is episode number 333, Accepting Your Past, with Matthew Dix. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Outs Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who've overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your full potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. The first announcement being an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming three-day experience on October 7th in Austin, Texas, called Survive to Thrive, Face Your Fears. What this is, is a three-day event where you'll get a chance to hear stories from speakers from all over the world, as well as be a part of breakout sessions that are intended to help you identify your fears and ways to transform them into strengths. If you'd like to know more details regarding this upcoming experience, please visit our website at overcomingodds.today where you'll be able to find the latest details. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our show, and that is if our show has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our cause by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show touch upon this topic I briefly just mentioned to you as far as invisibility goes and different ways to use curiosity to overcome elements of it. And you started sharing a little bit about your childhood. And I was curious, like, are there certain elements within the childhood that you felt more invisible? Or was it literally the entire experience? A lot of it was the entire experience. You know, I grew up as the eldest of five. And I had parents who were really sort of busy doing other things. And so part of that invisibility was that I had four young human beings who were constantly looking to me for guidance and assistance and sort of parenting. And even though you've got four people looking at you, you can feel really invisible because there's no one beyond you. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing backing you up. And so, you know, I watched my brother get hit by a car and I knew I had to call my parents, but like I was ill-equipped and I didn't know what to do. And when my parents finally got there and the ambulance took my brother away, my stepfather said, ride home and go take care of your sister. I had no idea like what was going to happen to my brother. He was unconscious. The paramedics seemed concerned, but there was no concern over, well, Matt just watched his brother get hit by a car and he's worried if he's going to live. There was just go home and take care of your sister we'll get back to you once we know something. So there was there was that lack of concern for, I guess, being the eldest and being, I think, a kid, frankly. So it was quite often that even though I had people around me, my brothers and sisters, I, I didn't feel like I was being noticed by anyone who needed to be noticing me. I always wondered that when in situations with people who have either, well, it sounds like in this case, younger siblings, what actually changes? Like in my case, I'm the younger sibling and I have an older brother. And so I've never even asked him this question. Maybe this is something worthwhile asking him. 
after we're done talking is like, how did he feel? You know, once the younger sibling comes into the equation, does it seem like the attention all of a sudden goes from where it used to be, which was you solely being the spotlight to now it's being shared to now it's possibly being gone. Yeah. In your case, like when you had four. Right. Yeah. Two were um, my biological siblings and two were step siblings, but we were all within five years of each other. We were really close in terms of age. I always say that if you're the eldest, that means you were also at one point an only child and then you weren't an only child anymore. Now, for me, I was only an only child for about 14 months. My brother came right after me. So I don't really have a lot of memories of being the, the only child. My, in my mind, my brother was always there just being younger than me. And my sister came another 12 months after that. So, you know, we were all together. But, you know, I remember as a kid desperately wanting for someone to notice me and notice what I could do. And, you know, I managed to find it in small ways. You know, I, I joined the Boy Scouts and I managed to be successful in the Boy Scouts. And I recognized that if I achieved, you know, and I did good things in scouting, I would receive merit badges and attention. And so for me, the strive to be less invisible became the strive to do things that someone might notice for once. Did you feel that in your case, the visibility was largely due to other people noticing you or was it you noticing yourself? Originally, it was other people noticing me. I think probably I always believed in myself. You know, I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't feel confident that the things I were doing were worth attention. But I remember many, many times in my life when I was the only one who felt that way, that regardless of how well I was doing in school or you know, what I was managing to do in terms of like writing. And, I, you know, when I was 12, I was writing political cartoons. It, I, I was writing Still. political cartoons. Yeah. At Easter one day, I was writing political cartoons on the coffee table. And my aunt, one of my seven aunts, saw the political cartoons, recognized that this 12-year-old's writing about Reaganomics. And he's actually <laughs> saying something that is relevant. And she collected them. And just a couple of years ago, she mailed them back to me. And she said, I want you to know that when you were 12 at Easter, you were writing these political cartoons and no one was noticing. And when I tried to point it out to people, nobody cared. So I scooped them up at the end of the day and I just stumbled upon them in my files and I'm sending them back to you now. But wow. that was sort of me, like feeling like I was doing something, trying to get people's attention through creative ways and you know means of success. And so often just no one would look in my direction. Where did you get that belief? Where did you get the self-belief? Because it didn't seem like you were getting it from the external sources as much. Like, is it something you yeah, were born with? Uh, maybe I was born with it. I mean, maybe part of it was that I really did have four people relying on me. And those four people seemed to believe in me. You know, there was never a time when my brothers and sisters wavered in their belief that I was the one who could find the fun thing to do, or I was the one to figure out how to get us out of a problem. So it might've just been that I was put in a position early on where others, you know, they happen to be my siblings, saw me in a certain way and that allowed me to see myself in a certain way. So, so that might've been part of it. I think I've also sort of always been a person who is sort of observing the world. And so I think I was smart enough 
at a young age to look around and see my classmates and, and see my brothers and sisters and see the people around and think to myself, well, I'm doing better than most of them. Like I, I can, I could do what they're doing and yet they seem to be being recognized for it. And I'm not, but I think I was aware of it, that I was aware that I was capable of doing things. It's just that I felt like I was the only one aware of doing, of noticing those things. You know, there's a lot of what you just described you and I have in common. And that's my childhood had similar experiences where I remember, I remember one particular experience and I don't know if I've actually even fully ever admitted this or not, but I was in a, I was at a summer camp. I was playing soccer at the time. <clears throat> and I remember one of the things was at the end of each session, we were given trophies. So the most improved, most valuable, most this, most that. And I remember having a really good summer. Like I truly felt like I was the most valuable player. And I did not end up getting that trophy. So what I did end up doing is I found out where the room was with the trophies. I went into the trophy room and I gave myself that trophy. Now, I ended up coming back, I think it was a week or two later and returning it because it just didn't feel like having it. But at the same time, like I felt like I earned it. So when you mentioned having to seek a lot of the external validation in order to make myself visible, that is something I experienced back then. You know, I felt like my efforts and all these things were adding up to that ultimate criteria that made up the, the recipient for any of these trophies. But for some reason, the, the outside people weren't seeing it. And ultimately, I think the lesson that I learned from that time was, well, A, don't steal. And B, you know, recognize yourself first, because all of these other things, they may add on to the meaning and experience, but they don't have to define the meaning and experience that I ultimately walk away with. Yeah. I love that story. I love it because I think the external world would see that as a boy who thought he deserved more than he did and went and stole his way to it. But what I see it as is a person who saw themselves in a way that no one else was willing to see them. And so they took care of themselves. Like, I think you were a kid taking care of yourself and saying, I deserve this thing. I know in my heart, I deserve this thing. And if no one's going to recognize me, then I'm going to take it. Now, maybe that is coming from me who experienced the same thing. And someone, someone who lived an idyllic childhood of great renown and recognition would probably see it differently. But I'm kind of sad that you gave it back. I wish you had kept it. I, I like I that story. Go, maybe I should go take it back. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a, we tell you hear all the time that you have to take care of yourself, that there's self-care. I kind of see what you did as a kid as self-care. Like you were denied something that you felt righteously that you deserved. And so I, I think in life, a lot of times we don't get what we deserve and sometimes we have to take it. Yeah. Well, I think the other component in life, at least what I'm experiencing is that there's such a great focus on helping others before you help yourself. You know, if anything, I don't know what your experience has been like, but I've definitely learned that helping yourself first is almost like a taboo. I mean, think about it. there's a reason why personal development is seen as this like, woo woo, like this is, you know, these are people who are out there. So don't talk to them, keep your distance. When really I begin to be, believe and understand that 
we're all doing personal development on day in and day out. It's just a matter of is one aware of it or not. And yeah, we're never the same I'm very, very the fond we of telling yesterday. people. I'm sorry. We're never the same person as the person we were, we were yesterday. Right. Yes. I, I tell people all the time that, you know, as a storyteller, I think storytellers are sort of self-centered in a really positive way, meaning we're deeply curious about ourselves. I think that most human beings spend an enormous amount of time thinking about their partners and spouses and children and parents and neighbors and clients and bosses and all of these people. But I think it's really rare for a person to sort of sit down, block everything else out and just think about yourself. Think about who you are, why you are, where you're going, where you want to be. I, I think tragically, most people live lives where they're not making bad decisions. They're making no decisions. I think they're following the path of least resistance. They tend to be moved in the direction that people and the universe and outside forces deem as most appropriate for them as opposed to what they might feel they want for themselves. And so what I always encourage people to do is 10 minutes a day, you have to, you know, you have to tell your spouse to go for a car ride. If you have kids, you lock them in the basement. If you have roommates, you like you, you kick them out of the house and you lock the door. And truly for me, I spend at least 10 minutes a day just thinking about myself, where I am, where am I going? Where's my horizon? What's the point I'm aiming at? And I don't think it's a selfish thing. I think it's a self-centered thing. And I do believe there's value in being self-centered, being curious about who you are as a person. Storytellers do that all the time. I don't think most people do. I think that part of it is what you've said, which is sort of this cultural stigma that you know, we should be thinking about other people rather than ourselves, which I think there's great value in thinking of other people. And I think we should completely do. I'm an elementary school teacher. I spend all day thinking about 24 small people. So I think that that's part of it. It's a trap to a certain degree. But I also think it's just really hard for people because I think when you start to get really curious about yourself and you think about who you are and where you are and why you are, I think you can find some uncomfortable things in there. As a storyteller, I love those uncomfortable things because I like to stand on stages and talk about how terrible I am. I like to find the worst parts of me and then share them with audiences. <laughs> I know that that's, well, that's what people respond to the best, 100%. Yes. That's what people want to hear. But I think most people, if I ask them, one of my favorite questions I ask is not, don't tell me what you do for a living. Tell me how you ended up in the job you're in. So many times, the reason people are doing a job is because, well, my sister worked at the company. Or my mother said this would be a good job for me, or this is the one that paid the most. And when I really drill down and say, well, what did you want to do? You know, what was your dream? Like, what was that childhood ambition? So often people have, have veered off from the things that they really wanted to do and landed in the things that were practical or the things that other people wanted to do. And that's a hard thing to notice about yourself. So I think it's easier to look at other people and to help them than it is to sometimes help yourself. Or to expand upon that realistic. That was the one that was the one that I had to come to terms with. Do the thing that is most realistic. And pursuing some of these other paths, like the path you're on, like the path I'm on, it's unrealistic. You know, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that not many people are pursuing those paths. So therefore there's no I feel like there's not a level of acceptance around entrepreneurship, around speaking, around some of these other paths that people take in life considered to the normal path, right? Yeah. That most people are familiar with. And I think as 
discouraging as it may seem, that to me has literally been the complete opposite of what you just mentioned as far as the path of least resistance, the path of most resistance. That is the path that I've seen the most growth. That's the path literally that gave me no other option but to look myself in the mirror and say, okay, here's who you are and you're going to have to start getting to terms with who you are because it's the only way to move forward. Yeah, I, I, I have a character in one of my novels say something that I like to say. So he's gotten credit for it now instead of me, this fictional character. But I always <laughs> say that the hard thing and the right thing are often the same thing. And I, I think what happens to people is to pursue a dream is really hard oftentimes. And, you know, it can get even harder when you recognize you have to continue to eat and live. So oftentimes for pursuing a dream for me, for example, now I wanted to be a school teacher, which was great. And I also wanted to be a writer. And I knew I couldn't be just one of either. I couldn't just be a school teacher because I desperately had the desire to write. But leaving college, if I had chosen to just become a writer, I would have starved to death initially, right? So if you want to do something, if you want to if you want to create stained glass windows for churches, that's probably not very profitable, at least not initially, which means you're probably going to have to do two things. And that's hard. It's hard to say, I'm going to go operate a laundromat during the day. And at night, I'm going to create stained glass with the hopes that someday that can become my living. Most people eventually give up on the hard thing and they just revert to the path of least resistance. This is the one that's earning me an income. And on the weekends, I'll just enjoy myself instead of killing myself to pursue that dream that I have. And, you know, that sounds fine. But I think what happens is when we reach the end of our lives and we look back, we see that thing we always wanted to do and we realize we didn't do it. And I think that produces enormous regret. And, and I live a life where I'm desperately trying to avoid any regret. Yeah. And I think especially in the final days, you're spot on. I've had many people who are in their quote unquote last chapter. And that's the biggest fear is regret. Regret yeah. of doing things that we wish you did or speaking to the people. And I, you know, I also look at it maybe through a similar or slightly different lens. Like I do believe every day is a miracle. And think about that. It's actually crazy. The fact that we're still alive, that we're able to wake up, that the body is able to do all of this process oxygen in its own way. Like I couldn't even tell you the first step it takes for me to be able to inhale, exhale, produce words, make meaning. And all yeah. of that, I'm just, I just wake up with. Like that is a whole different world that I don't really even have to think about how it works. It just does. And so the point that I'm trying to make is I think for me, I share a similar thing. I think my biggest fear is regret or the possible regret of not being able to even take a chance at your dreams. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, when not? I was right. One chance. When I was 21, I was robbed at gunpoint. You know, I was managing a restaurant and um, the gun was put to my head and they began counting back and they told me they were going to pull the trigger and kill me because I couldn't open a section of the safe they wanted opened. And obviously I did not die that day, but I was certain I was going to die 100%. And in those final moments, the thing that shocked me the most was I wasn't angry or afraid or even sad. I only felt regret. I was 21 years old. I had accomplished basically nothing at that point in my life and it was devastating. And so ever since that day, you know, ever since that moment on a greasy tile floor in the back of a McDonald's restaurant, 
I have lived desperately hoping that I will not feel that way when I come to that final moment, you know, for real. The reason my book is called Someday is Today is because I think someday is a terrible word. I think it's a trap. It's the belief that there is a tomorrow and that someday I will eventually do something. And I think what most people do is they say, someday I'm going to do something. And then eventually they just die without having done that thing. And so if you're waiting to do something, if you have a vision of the future, assume no future, uh, assume nothing except that you have today. Someday is today. Begin the thing that you want to begin. Well, I'm always a huge believer and I, I believed in this, you know, Nike's slogan, just do it. Yeah. I've always felt the more appropriate slogan would be just do it dot, dot, dot tomorrow. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people, including myself once upon a time, lived lives. Yeah. And it, it's real. It's a reality, of, I think, for many of us. Yeah, it's hard not to assume there is a tomorrow because you seem to always wake up the next day, you know, until the day you don't. And, you know, I, I was given a terrible gift. I mean, I, it resulted in post-traumatic stress disorder for, and I suffered for years till I finally got some therapy. But I, and those terrible men who did that terrible thing to me that night also gave me a gift because I really think I got a little glimpse at what the end of life can feel like if you have not lived well, if you have not pursued the things in your heart that everyone has. We all want to do something. And sometimes those things are, extraordinary and maybe impossible to reach. You know, if, if you want to be a professional baseball player, a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of those people are going to succeed. But that doesn't mean that you can't become a coach or work for a team or, or you know, coach your child's little league team or join a, a, a late night softball league. Like there's ways that you can continue to pursue your dream, even if it's not at the apex that you want to envision. But I think people Again, they just assume that there will be a tomorrow that I'm going to get to it someday. And then they binge Netflix instead. And, and at the end of your life, you're not going to be wishing you had watched more television. You're not going to be wishing you could <laughs> scroll through your phone one more time, right? You're going to be thinking about all the real things that you didn't do because you spent time in front of screens or, you know, spent extra time in bed lounging around when you could have been pursuing something meaningful. Going back to invisibility, and I'm really curious because, well, I, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone like yourself. Going back to the time that you worked at McDonald's, was that ever a chapter of your life that you chose to keep invisible from yourself and the outside world? Oh, that's interesting. I don't think I kept it invisible. You know, I started working at McDonald's when I was 16 years old. And by the time I was 17, I was a manager. It was a manager of a McDonald's. So it wasn't, it wasn't the manager of IBM. Uh, but, you know, I think instead of keeping it concealed from the world, because that probably would have been impossible. You know, it's just, it was just a thing I did all the time and people had to know it. I think instead of keeping it invisible, I tried to make people understand how challenging and meaningful that job could really be. You know, I tell people all the time that if I was running a Fortune 100 company, I would send someone out to every McDonald's in the country, find the highly effective managers that exist in restaurants, whoever they are, and I would hire them. Because I think if you can run a McDonald's restaurant well, you can basically do just about anything. And so I think rather than hiding, I tried to really make it clear that this is not a job that most people see as valuable. 
and yet is of all the jobs I've ever had in my life, including 24 years of teaching in a public school in a title one school where there's great poverty. I will tell you my McDonald's management career was more challenging than my teaching career. It's an exceptionally challenging job that is difficult to do well. So that's what, what I did, I think. Well, I mean, you have to run a restaurant with 60 to 100 people, most of whom don't want to be there and you're not paying very well and you can't pay very well based upon corporate structures and all of these things. Oftentimes you, the collection of people you have working is kind of extraordinary. So the last restaurant I managed, I had Peruvian immigrants who didn't speak English. I had stay at home moms who were looking to just do something during the day. I had high school kids who were coming out of school and then just looking for a little extra money and everything in between um, prisoners on release programs, you know, inc incarcerated people who would come in on, on work release. So it was just an enormous variety of people who were relatively unmotivated and you had to motivate them. You had to make sure that they were there. You're serving food, which is really, you have to be careful in the service of food. Like you can make people sick if you're not doing it the right way. And then you have to balance labor and you have to balance food costs. You have to make sure that like you have enough lettuce for the day, but not too much lettuce that it's going to go bad two days from now. So the number of inputs that you have to deal with as a manager are extraordinary. And most people couldn't do it. I watched managers wash out all the time. And then I watched amazing people, like some of the most amazing people I've ever known in my entire life were managers at McDonald's restaurants who I was convinced, you know, there was a woman named Mary Franco and um, she was from El Salvador. She came to America, not speaking English, went to McDonald's, not speaking English, started in the kitchen, just cooking food because she didn't have to speak English in order to flip burgers and eventually was running the store and was one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. And the only reason she's still managing McDonald's today is because she's an immigrant from El Salvador whose English is still not, you know, great but you could put her in any company and she would outwork everybody. And she's brilliant. Uh, and, and that's what happens in those restaurants is those kinds of people rise up, but it's not easy because of all of those inputs. Yeah. I've always been curious. And that's the, that's the reason why I asked you that question, because I think the fast food industry, especially doesn't get the best rep. Yeah. No, it's oftentimes seen as a job that like, it's the last resort. It's the very last option. I mean, I, I don't know what the percentage of people would be, but I would bet people would maybe rather clean toilets than work in a McDonald's or accept yeah. that. And, and that's where I was like, in your case, having, the, having had the experience to work there, how did you view yourself and how did you present yourself to the rest of the world? Because for a fact, I know if I was in that situation at that age, I probably would have tried to hide it. Because it would yeah, be well, as a like kid, an embarrassment and not an accomplishment. Right. When you're a kid, it doesn't really matter. Everyone has a terrible job. So that just happened to be my terrible job. I got kicked out of my home when I was 18 and had to live on my own. And so I was lucky that as a high school kid, they turned me into a manager because I at least had a job when I got kicked out of my house. And I was living with people who were going to college and I was incredibly jealous. But you know, I was also grateful that I had something because I spent most of my senior year of high school wondering where I would live and what would I eat when I graduated because I knew I was going to have to leave. So some of that gratitude probably helped me a lot too. Um, for a portion of the time, I mean, for half the time I was a college student too. 
So that helps. You're managing a McDonald's restaurant, but you're going to college and pursuing something. And sort of, I think maybe that balanced it a little bit for me. You know, whereas if my career was McDonald's, that might have been something that would have been more challenging yeah. on an ego level for me. But I knew yeah. it wasn't my, it, I knew it wasn't the end for me. I knew it was a stopping place um, before I reached some other place. Was that a spoken rule for you to leave the house at 18? Yeah, yeah. I had a stepfather who um, was not ideal. And so when I was, when I was 17 for my birthday, I received a microwave and a set of dishes and then, you know, Christmas that year, I got towels and silverware. So like, it was really, it was not only said, but it was made very clear that we're gonna give you a few things and we've we've raised you to 18 and now you're off on your own, so. That would be a yeah. hard transition. It was hard, <laughs> it was really, uh, you know, the sad thing, no one said college to me in high school not a single person, not a guidance counselor, not a teacher, not a parent. I never heard the word spoken. I had friends. Yeah. And I finished really well in my class. I finished in the top 10% of my class. I was a champion pole vaulter in high school. I played the, I played in the marching band and we won state championships. I was doing a lot of things, but we were poor. And I think maybe in those days, they saw me as a really poor kid who would never be able to afford college. So why bring it up to him? So I remember when my friends were taking SATs, I didn't know what an SAT was. And I kept trying to figure it out without telling anyone because I was too ashamed to tell anyone I wasn't doing all the things they were doing. So I would just sort of nod my head in their company and pretend like I knew what they were talking about when I didn't have a clue. Now, I'm assuming college was then a choice, choice you made? Oh yeah. I mean, I wanted to go to college desperately after high school because I wanted to be a teacher and a writer. I just didn't think it was going to be possible. And so, you know, it wasn't until I was 20 three that I finally managed to make it first to community college and then eventually to um, traditional universities. Mm. I've always been curious because I remember a couple of times I would sit in the classroom with people who were older. Like I remember one class in particular, I was, it was a introduction to entrepreneurship. I was sitting there and there's a person probably well into his fifties, maybe sixties. And it, it really got my wheel spinning as far as A, it's never too late. And B, I, I really got curious about his journey. Like what was his journey like to be able to step into that classroom? And you know, outside of it, he probably has a family. He's probably yeah. not able to go to the dorm and hang out with all the people there. So it's just really interesting for me how people are able to find these opportunities to make choices for a variety of reasons. Right. Like in your case, you had to literally figure it out at 18. And since college wasn't really an option, you probably had a completely different path from 18 to 23. Yeah. I, and even when I made it to college, I was managing a restaurant full time while I was attending college through all those years. So I would see my classmates leave class and go off to the bistro or talk like about what they were doing that. And I would go to work. Yeah, I would go to work. And I worked in the writing center as well because I was poor. I mean, even as a McDonald's manager, you're not making a lot of money and you're trying to support yourself through college. And I wasn't living in the dorms. And so I had to you know, take care of myself in that regard too. So you know, I was working a lot, but the great luck I had, although it wasn't luck in any way, was just before I made it to college, I was homeless for a period in my life. And I had been arrested and I had been put on trial for a crime I didn't commit. 
And it was when I was finally found not guilty in that trial. And I was finally rescued from the streets by some people who actually McDonald's employees, former employees who found out I was living on the streets, they, they took me in. By the time I got to college, I had put all that stuff behind me, but nothing seemed hard anymore. Because even though I had to work 50 hours a week and attend full-time classes in two different schools at the same time, because I wanted two degrees at the same time, none of it seemed very hard because just before I had been homeless in jail and facing trial and 10 years in prison for something I didn't do. So I was just so happy to be finally on a path that I saw to something meaningful that none of it seemed very hard to me. Today, I look and go, how did I do two degree programs in two different schools while working full time. Like I can't even begin to imagine how I managed it, except I know I was coming off such difficulty that it didn't seem very hard. What was that like? What was that like what you just described? Homelessness, the possibility of going to prison, especially at that age. It was not easy. Uh, it was the only time in my life when I really started to lose hope. You know, I remember that I this was, was, you would have been how old? I was uh, 21, 22. I, for about, I had about 18 months of real enormous challenge. You know, so that was when that like was the, the beginning to the journey of what you could, when you actually start to think of what the future could look like. Yeah. Like and I was robbed. Yeah. The robbery happened during that time too. So it was really a enormous, enormously difficult time for me, but um, I was alone. I was very much alone. And it was a time filled with shame. Uh, I became homeless basically because the people who could have helped me sort of opted not to. And the people who couldn't help me wish they could. And so, you know, when people asked, where are you going to live? I would say, oh, I have a place to stay. Don't worry. Because I was so ashamed by not having a place to stay. And when I got arrested for something I didn't do, I was so ashamed of the fact that I had even been arrested. Even though I did nothing wrong, I didn't really tell anyone that I had been arrested. And when my when my when I was you know indicted and had to go on trial, I was so ashamed of it that I really didn't tell anyone. So it was a time of great loneliness for me. And it was a time when I started to think, the only thing in my life I might have in the future is this, which is, I work small jobs for cash money. I buy food during the night to eat. Like I eat a dinner. I sleep in my car or on the street. And that might just be my life now. Because I couldn't envision myself getting off the street. I couldn't figure out a way to actually get money to move into a place, you know, to have a roof over my head, a real roof. So all of those things were, it was frightening and lonely and hopeless. And then someone saved me. Well, I mean, really the most significant change was uh, this couple who I had hired three years before at one of the McDonald's I was working at. I hired the husband, Jerry, as a custodian and the wife, Mary, as a cashier. They found out that I was homeless. They found out through a sort of an ex-girlfriend figured out, Matt doesn't have a place to live. She figured it out. And she told Mary and Jerry. And one night I was in that McDonald's eating my one meal of the day. And uh, Mary came and sat with me while I was eating the meal. And she said, where are you staying right now? And I said, oh, I'm staying with friends. It's fine. And then she, she leaned in and she said, where are you really staying? And I said, well, I don't really have a place right now, but it's okay because I'm figuring it out. And she said, you'll come and live with us. And I said, no, no, no. But in my head, I was thinking, 
thank God someone is going to save me because you couldn't really even get a job. It was, you know, it was 1992 and in 92 cell phones don't exist. So the only way you can get a job is if you have a phone where they can call you to tell you, you have the job. And the only way you can have a phone is if you own a wall to put the phone on. And the only way you can own a wall is if you own a house or you live in a place, right? So the only work I could get was I would go to construction sites and I would often pick up nails and scraps for the day because I knew they would hire kids to do that. And, you know, they would give me 10 or $20 at the end of the day for picking up scraps. And that would be gas money because I had a car that I was getting ready to lose because I was trying to make payments on it with this little money I was collecting and I would eat with it. And so I would do those little cash jobs during the day so that I could eat a little at night and put gas in the car. And then I would go park in a parking lot and stay awake for most of the night because I was terrified that someone would kill me while I was in my car. But it, when Mary and Jerry invited me to come live with them, you know, it was a little room off their kitchen. It used to be a pantry. They turned it into a bedroom. There was already another person sleeping there. They had taken in another person too, a guy like me. And it was actually the room that their indoor pet goat used to occupy and still occupied. So I shared this tiny little space with this guy named Rick and their indoor goat and me, but it was the best like bedroom I've ever had in my life because there was a phone on the wall in the kitchen. And that meant now I could apply for a job and I could take a shower and I could. And so very quickly, I managed to get a couple jobs and suddenly I was earning a little bit of money and that meant I would be able to keep my car. And that meant eventually I could start saving a little money because I had to hire an attorney. And so, you know, eventually I started working 85 hours a week to pay $25,000 to an attorney who would ultimately represent me and get me exonerated. What an experience. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's it was lucky. But I mean, I also, you know, I, I was fortunate that I met those people. I hired them on. I treated them well as a manager. I stayed in contact with them even after I left that restaurant and moved to a different restaurant. I kept them in the loop with me. I, you know, maintained a friendship with them and um, they saved me. They, you know, they made a big difference in my life. I don't know. I, I would imagine I'd probably would have found a way to get off the street mm -hmm. eventually, maybe after my trial. Uh, but, but who knows? I don't the know journey how. could have been longer. The journey could have been different. You know, that yeah. you might have gotten involved in drugs. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I have, I, you know, I, I suffer from PTSD from that robbery. It was, they really did a number on me. They did some terrible things to me that night. And uh, I don't really, I deal with it very well today. For years, I did nothing about it because I just figured it was my thing. I just woke up screaming every night. That was, some people collect stamps. I wake up screaming. Eventually, I met my wife and she was like, you got to go talk to somebody because this is not a normal thing. But in talking to my therapist, the one thing he always says is, it's remarkable that you did not turn to drugs, to alcohol, to, to a life of violence. Like, you know, he, he said that um, one of the things he always reminds himself of is the empathy we have to have for people who turn to those things. Because most people don't turn to drugs and alcohol because they're having a good time. It's usually something that comes because life is not treating them well, or people are not taking care of them, or something terrible has happened that has resulted in these choices. And so it's not like someone gets addicted to heroin because they thought it looked fun. It was because something inside them needed to be placated. And that was the thing they found. 
So, so you're right. I got very, very lucky. I, I mean, when I graduated from high school, I've never used an illegal drug in my life. When I graduated from high school, I understood I didn't have a safety net anymore. There was no one to save me. And so I said to myself, I said, I'm never going to use an illegal drug because if I end up in trouble, arrested or addicted or in some way needing help, there's no safety net for me. So I'll do a lot of other things. I certainly did my share of drinking for a while. You know, I was a high school kid, a college kid drinking. But um, I said, I'm never going to do drugs because it's just a path that will lead to problems. And I can't afford problems because no one's here to save me. And so I got very lucky in that regard that I made that conscious decision um, as an 18 year old. Do you still keep in touch with the people that created that opportunity for you? Yeah, uh, I visited them a couple years ago. Jerry has passed on. They were both older when they um, when they took me in. They were already in their 50s. So I haven't spoken to Mary in more than a year, but Jerry passed on a couple years ago and I check in on Mary every now and again. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm always blown away by people like that who choose to yeah. give others a chance and even in situations like that, right? She, when she was talking to you, she could have just finally let go. She could have looked at it as like, okay, this kid is just going to tell me that he has a place to stay and he's going to his friends and I'm going to let him figure it out. Instead, yeah. she chose to be persistent and get to the truth of the matter. And as difficult as it might have been to share a route with someone else as well as a pet goat, you can look back at it now and say, this is an experience that I yeah. just had to go through. And I think that's the thing that I'm ultimately learning as part of this journey is that I can never predict what's going to happen next. And so why hold shame about some of these events, right? If I were to tell you that, okay, it's going to be this way that I can get out of whatever circumstance, then that's it. That's where the story ends. But the reality of the matter is like there's a whole other experience for how things had to happen or happened in order for you to get out of what you went through. Yeah, it's, um, it's an impossible collection of interactions that make up our lives. And you're right, you can never predict what's going to happen. So, you know, I just believe in having purpose and direction and as much positivity as you can fill yourself with. And then, you know, moving. I, I always tell people, if you can't see a horizon, you have to find a horizon, something to be chasing, and you should have a point on that horizon. It's okay if the point changes over the course of time, but I don't think a lot of people have a horizon. I don't think they have a thing they're chasing. I think they get up in the morning with the, with the idea they'll go to bed at night, and that's their goal is I'll live today. I'll go to bed and tomorrow I'll rinse and repeat, you know, what just happened. Um, to, and I just think, find your horizon, which is, it goes right back to spend some time thinking about yourself, who you are, why you are, where you are, where do you want to go? Most people don't. So they don't have a horizon to chase. Yeah. Yeah. And I think once again, I'm, I'm not judging and I don't feel like you are either anyone else's journey, but at the same time, I think it's, uh, I think it's devastating. I think it's devastating sometimes because I've lived that life. Trust me. I, I've, I've been in those situations where I would get up and my goal is literally, I'm already thinking about what am I going to do when the day ends? The challenge yeah. that I've realized about that particular life is that the more I chose to focus on when is the day going to end, that day literally ends. <laughs> like I start with eight and somehow I blink and it's five and I blink again and it's nine. And so yeah. I think there's tremendous power in, in being able to focus 
on that thing. I mean, it's the only reason why I've been able to explain why any of these ideas or thoughts actually come to fruition. Focus, somehow yeah. manifesting, somehow attracting the people. I don't know if you believe in this and I'm curious to hear your perspective. Do you believe that you attract people at the right time or what's, what's your thought on that? I don't think you, I don't think I attract people at the right time, but I think, um, you know, I think what I do is I believe in the power of saying yes to every opportunity. Uh, you know, I, I hate the advice people give where you should say no to opportunities, like protect yourself, protect your time and energy. Cause every time you say no to an opportunity, you don't know what was sort of behind that door. It doesn't mean that your yes can't eventually become a no. I can walk through the door give something a try and then go forget it. It's not for me. Go back and close the door. But most people think you should like close the doors without even peeking in. And so because I say yes to everything, I think what I've done and what I did back then too, I guess, was I always made sure my life was filled with people. You know, even as that McDonald's manager moving on to another restaurant, I stayed in touch with the people at the previous restaurant. Most managers didn't do that. They would just move on. And I saw those connections as meaningful connections with people who cared about me and who I cared about. And so I don't think I attract the right people at the right time. I think I just make sure that there's lots of people around me at all times. And when I have the opportunity to meet a new person, to make a new connection, I always do. And so as a result, when I needed Mary and Jerry, they were there because I chose to keep in touch with them when most people I think would have let them go. And so every time I seem to need someone they're present, not because I've drawn them to me, but because I've made sure that there are people around me. Mm. You mentioned briefly, you've written a book. Can you yes. tell me a little bit more about what the book's about? What led you to that journey? And ultimately, what was that journey like? Because I'm putting sure. it together right now. And it's a, it's a process, to say <laughs> the least. <laughs> yes. Well, it's my ninth book. So it's been a long journey to this one. I started writing novels. I've published seven novels and now two books of nonfiction. The one that I mentioned is a book called Someday is Today. And essentially it's a, the answer to the question I get asked most often. I stand in front of people a lot. I'm a performer and a storyteller. I've written novels and books. So I, I do book talks and things like that all the time. And because I'm an elementary school teacher and an author and a public speaker, and I run a couple of my companies and I'm a, I'm a minister and a wedding DJ. I do a lot of things. I wear a lot of hats. So the question I get asked the most is, how do you manage to do all the things that you do? How, how is that even possible? And when I get asked the question, I often think, if you'll give me 14 hours, I'll explain the whole process for you. <laughs> but no one wants 14 hours of me, even my wife and children. They want five minutes. And yeah, exactly. So I would always give them like three strategies. And I always felt like, that's three of like a thousand. It's too bad. I can't give you more. <laughs> and so the book was essentially the answer to that question. It is, how have I managed to live a productive life that is also filled with a wife and children and cats and golf and poker and all the other things that I love to do? I'm not a crazy workaholic person. My wife actually wrote the forward to the book saying <laughs> basically saying he's not crazy. Like he is crazy. But he's also not crazy because he always sp spends plenty of time with us and the kids and all of the, he's got lots of friends and all of these things I have working for me. So the book answers that question. How do you manage to chase every dream you have and also still live a life that's filled with people and fun and 
hobbies and relaxation and vacation and all of those other things too. So it's answering that question. Mm. And where can people find the book? Where can people come um, with you as well? They can find the book wherever you get books, um, you know, Amazon or go to your local independent bookstore. If you can, that's the best place to buy books. Those are the people who love books the most. Mm. And you can just find me at matthewdix.com. All of my stuff is basically right there. Matthew, thank you. Thank you for this. And thank you for just sharing all these stories and experiences. It's uh, I always find it fascinating the journeys people take through their own lives because they are drastically different from the journey that I've been taking or anyone else's. And so whenever I come across people like you, and especially the stories that you mentioned and the elements of your identity that you may or may not have kept invisible and then through whatever the process that you took, made it visible and now are using that as a way to help others. I just, I applaud that. Thank you very much. It was an honor to be here today, truly. Thanks. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next time.